Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, music and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode, I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Finn Mackey. Finn is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of the West of England, and they are the author of a new book from Bloomsbury, Female Masculinities and the Gender Wars. Finn has a background in feminist activism, founding the London Feminist Network and the revived London Reclaim the Night in 2004. Thank you so much, Finn, for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So uh, let's get started. Which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party? Well, I'm sure everyone says this. It's very difficult, of course, to pick three and you're well tempted to reunite with, you know, people that have passed that you missed. But um, I have picked Kate Millett, mm-hmm. the author of Sexual Politics mm. uh, and Bell Hooks, particularly for her work on masculinities. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Kate Bornstein, a non-binary transgender activist whose work I've found quite inspiring since the 1990s and is a committed activist and someone I admire. Mm. So these guests are all kind of writers, activists. Uh, we've we've uh, read a book by Bell Hooks before in our in our book club um, and she's kind of uh, yeah a bit of a we're a bit, we're all fans of her. <laughs> um, Brilliant. <laughs> Why, why those three guests? How, how have they inspired you? Um, well, as you say, I mean, Bell Hooks is a you know, towering feminist figure. So prolific, such a lot of wisdom there in her work. Um, and I find particularly useful her, her book called The Will to Change mm-hmm. on Men, Masculinity and Love. It's very concise. All of her work is very readable. That's another thing that I admire about it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a short, concise book, but it has such a lot of great feminist insight in, in there into masculinities, the construct of masculinity and manhood, um, you know, the humanity of everybody and how some of those definitions could be changed. So, and I always recommend that book to people. Mm. And how about Kate Millett? Well, Kate Millett, I think her book, Sexual Politics, is sort of still stands as one of the best analyses of patriarchy, what it is, where it's come from, and how it might be changed in the future. I think it's just one of the best books that's ever been written on that. Uh, she's such an amazing intellectual, um, such a thinker, and of course was an activist as well. And she actually wrote a cover endorsement for my first book on radical feminism which is something I still kind of can't quite believe and and I had a couple a few email conversations with her and that was just amazing you know to be in contact with someone who's a bit of a shero really and who of whom I'm a total fan and then to have her write an endorsement for the cover of my book was it was just amazing and something that I still really treasure. Um, yeah, so that's why I picked Kate Millett. Do you think the three of those guests would get on? <laughs> uh, yes, I think they really would, actually. Um, 
Yeah, I do. I think they'd have a similar <clears throat> style of, and a similar sense of humour, I think. Particularly Kate Miller and Kate Bornstein, I, I think, would would get on. Um, and I think all of them could have very interesting discussions about gender and gender roles and gender politics today, um, you know, and the changes that that's been through as well. Mm. well where are you holding this Dream of Dinner Party? <laughs> um, gosh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, you know, somebody's gorgeous. I'm seeing some sort of American brownstone house somewhere. Um, yeah, not not my house. Somewhere somewhere nice and big, or maybe you know, a, a peace camp somewhere, or round a fire at a protest. Mm. Oh, nice. I think that would work really well. I think they'd all <laughs> feel at home there as well. <laughs> um, and what tunes are going to be on repeat all evening? Yes, well, this was hard as well. Um, so I picked, um, gosh, which did I pick now? I picked I Will Survive, I think was on my list. Um, and that's because that's a song that's always played at the end of Women's Aid National Conference parties, <laughs> discos. Um, and of course, it's such a classic, but it just really reminds me of that song being played at, at women's aid parties and, and everyone getting up and dancing and being so sort of joyful and powerful um, and connected. And Women's Aid is an organisation that I've done a bit of work for in the past. I, it's our national, um, you know, organisation uh, working for women and children affected by domestic abuse. I think it's a national treasure of an organization i think everyone working for it is also are also national treasures so that's why i picked that song and then um the the one by larue um that was because i picked that because gosh back in the must have been about 2008 or something like that um maybe 2007 2008 the London Feminist Network and the London Reclaim and I actually had a Channel 4 documentary made about us. Mm. And the film crew and the director, Vanessa Engel, they followed us around. They followed us around for about a year, actually, to come into our conferences, um, protest marches that we went on, planning meetings that we had, educational meetings that we had. They were always there. And we all sort of turned into a bunch of divas, really, because we got so used to this film crew following us around and sound people coming and putting mics on our clothes and everything we just got really used to it and then when they finished the filming and they left we were all a bit bereft we were like oh but don't I need to be hooked up for sound don't I need a mic where's my cameraman <laughs> as if we were celebs and we should be being followed around just continuously for the rest of our lives um so that was that was a really ex exciting you know it was a really exciting time and and uh, the march was really taking off as well. The organisation was really taking off. And then when the film came out, which I think was in about 2010, that it was actually broadcast, um, that that song was what they chose for the soundtrack towards the end of the documentary where you just see this footage going along the Reclaim the Night March in the dark and there's just thousands of women and there's all the placards and that's the song that they played as soon as that imagery started of the march marching and so it always makes me think of that time mm. um so yeah that's why I picked that one um and then and then what was the other one Candy Statton and uh, You Got the Love that's just a great song <laughs> that just reminds me of 
dancing and uh, being out at clubs and house parties when I was young. And so, yeah, <laughs> just a classic tune. I mean, I love the stories behind those. That kind of, it tells a bit of a story throughout your dinner party. Well, at what order are they coming in? What's kind of being played first? Um, uh, well, that's a good question. I think, um, I think maybe end on, on I Will Survive, just to keep mm. the the women's aid disco tradition going um and then maybe maybe candy Stanton to start as a bit of a lighter one and then um and then the the rude one mm -hmm. um and are you cooking or are you getting someone into to cook oh god no i would not be cooking <laughs> <laughs> no i i am i'm not good at cooking i mean i can follow a recipe and i quite like making I, 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 when I have done it, like I've made cakes, oh my God, maybe like twice or something, um, I can follow a recipe and I quite enjoy doing it, but it's a big sort of mammoth thing for me. Like it takes all day, I go and plan it, I go and get the little things, I'll measure out all what I need. It's, it's quite a big mission. I'm mm. not someone who can just sort of cook off the cuff. Um, I don't have any kind of classics that I made. If I left, if I'm left alone, I just eat a mono diet. I just eat really boring. I'll just have stir fry noodles and vegetables, pasta and sauce. I, it's just, yeah, I'm quite boring like that. <laughs> I'm, a bit of a, um, I'm not very adventurous when it comes to food at all. So no, I would have to be getting this in from somewhere. Okay. <clears throat> so first off, what are you serving for your starter? <laughs> um, well, I would have, yeah, I thought about this because I thought, hmm, should I just go like garlic dough balls like, like from Pizza <laughs> Express? Pizza Express is one of my favourite places to go. Um, <laughs> and when I was when I was younger, it was really posh. Like I can remember when, you know, Pizza Express was was quite a novel thing and it, it was quite expensive, but restaurants were really fancy. It was sort of like a high street fancy restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um and I still find it quite exciting actually to go to Pizza Express. So, <laughs> I know they're quite commonplace now and they, they wouldn't be seen as a fancy restaurant now. Um, so yeah, I like dough balls from there, but then I also like um, the tomato and mozzarella salad that they used to do. It's changed now and it's smaller and it's not as good, but um, a really nice one of those, I think I would start with. Delicious. I mean, I agree with you. I, I think, I don't know what happened to Pizza Express, but the last kind of, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years, it kind of has lost its yeah the, the the charm I suppose but I I know in the when it kind of was first opened it was quite a not I wouldn't say cool but it was quite a yeah it was quite a smart place with it yeah it was it was like chic wasn't it It was like oh get me I'm going to my fancy restaurant and it felt like yeah it felt like you were a celeb or something <laughs> um, and are you drinking anything alongside your food um well, again, I'm really unadventurous with this. Um, I don't drink wine. Um, I don't like it. Um, <laughs> um, I'm quite a philistine about most of these things. So I would probably have Coke or I'd have lager shandy. <laughs> nice. Good. <laughs> um, and how about for your main? And then a really good vegetarian lasagna with not too much vegetables and lots of cheese um yes and veggie mints yeah so heavy on the kind of bechamel sauce and the cheese yeah not so heavy on the vegetables <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
And are you serving that with anything as a side? Um, yeah, so it'd have to be garlic bread um, and maybe kind of more salad, I think. Yeah, not that I would probably eat it. And everyone despairs of me and it is, you know, my sort of toddler style um, food tastes are a bit <laughs> well known. And, you know, I'm the one that if you go out to a nice restaurant somewhere, I'll have untouched salad and vegetables on my plate and everyone else will get them passed over to them. <laughs> is uh, veggie lasagna something you eat a lot with your family or would it be kind of like like for a, a treat that kind of thing yeah that would probably be a, a treat I mean occasionally occasionally I, I will make I will make one um or a shepherd's pie occasionally I'll make usually if they've they've if they've been away um got two children and my partner my son who's eight he actually really likes the um shepherd's pie that I make I don't know why because he's he's even more picky than I am but but that for some reason he does like and then vegetarian lasagna as well but he's the same as me he doesn't want it to have too many vegetables in it <laughs> it does ideally he wouldn't see them they kind of be quite small and sort of cubed up in there mm. um and then he doesn't like very rich sauces either it's, it's a bit sort of plainer yeah so we do we do have those things yeah but just because they're a bit more involved in the making yeah um he likes a really cheesy macaroni cheese as well, but he he prefers them from uh, from the supermarket and only certain types. So yeah, he's he's not a foodie. <laughs> <laughs> for you, for this dinner party, would you like your family to be there, or is it very much grown up? Kind of, you've invited those those three guests, and you you want it to be that you and those three guests, or would you prefer it to be a kind of community family meal? Mm, I think I think I'd rather have them all to myself I mean um, our newest our newest child um, she is only like one and a half mm -hmm. and so when you've got children around and um, the eight-year-old he gets he gets bored quite easily as well so they're just quite consuming you know you've always got to be kind of having an eye on them you know watching what's going on and so it's quite um, it's quite distracting. I'm not one of those parents that's very good at just sort of going with the flow and not, you know, not not having it sort of take over. Um, I'm still not very good at that. That's still a work in progress for me. Mm -hmm. um, so although I'd like the idea of that and I'd like the idea of um, my children and partner meeting them, uh, I think I would be more relaxed if I was just with them, yeah. That makes sense. How, I mean, how do you channel your kind of, feminism through your parenting how do you I guess explore feminism through how you parent your children mm. <clears throat> well we've always been we've always been quite honest you know in, in, in an age-appropriate way we we always have you know we'll have the news on on the radio in the background um you know we, we talk about things that are going on in the world and with our son we've always we've always been yeah as I say we've always explained things to him if he's heard something on the radio about refugees or a war somewhere we've always just explained to him um what that means we've always had um political children's books I suppose you would say but just children's books that deal with um you know non-majority families so we've always had books with other children with two mums or two dads um we have children's books that kind of try to explain what's going on in the world as well um and and we talked to we talked to him about sexism we 
talk to him about stereotypes. He's he's very up on all of that. He's very aware of all of that. Sometimes he'll come and tell us about things and he'll he'll spot things um, that are sexist. And we do that as well about how boys and men are represented as well. Um, and we we talk to him about those things. Becoming a parent was one of those times, I'm sure you have experienced this, where you know you've sort of read and studied stuff and you you you've seen what goes on in the world and, and you believe something to be true. And then and then there are times when it happens right in front of your face and you think, oh God, I, I was actually right. <laughs> I, I was actually right to believe that. Yeah, that does actually happen. Um, so to see gendering firsthand um becoming a parent you know was interesting and made me think right yeah you know there's there's clearly still a lot of work to be done um he had long hair for quite a long time not for any political reason he just wasn't bothered about getting it cut we just cut it so it didn't go in his eyes he always had all different kinds of toys all different kinds of clothes and colors he liked bright colors he used to quite like pink um and so sometimes he'd have pink shoes on or a pink jacket and then with his long hair so people would always assume that that he was a girl child and that didn't really bother him but for me seeing the different ways that he was treated we also never sexed other people so we would never say oh that man's driving the digger or you know that woman's working in the shop we would always say oh that person's having their lunch from the digger or oh look that person digging the road is finished now or that person you know doing this that the other and we did the same for children we would say little person or let that child on the swing first and I remember one time I was in the playground and I said to him oh let that little person down the slide first because they were there before you and this person's parent it might have been their their father I don't know whoever it was but sort of got right up in my face and went yes girl it's a little girl thank you sort of quite abruptly um and I just thought wow okay I mean, it's interesting that having children really pr proved a lot of your work to you, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, it did. Um, it did, and it was just quite stark. It, again, you know, obviously I know people with children. Um, you know, I, I kind of heard of these things and heard people talking about them. But then when you quite regularly say, you know, once a week or so, or, you know, Two or three times a month you know you, you you see these little things happening it's just much more stark then than it's in your face mm. and then of course now everyone is saying oh now you'll see because you've got a girl and a boy you know now you'll see you know all the innate differences and actually he was he was much more timid and gentle I think this is a lot more to do with being the second child and being bolder and kind of more fierce because of that but um I our little girl is a lot more fierce than, than he was. She just goes thundering off into everything. She's really bold. She's not scared of anything. She's not particularly cuddly. She can't be rocked to sleep or anything. Whereas he, he was, he was like a little monkey. He was barely off of us. You could always comfort him with cuddling him. And he loved being cuddled and he would fall asleep in your arms really easily. He was frightened of quite a lot of things. So, so they're not playing to the stereotypes so far, but I mean, we'll see. <laughs> Um, so, okay, back to the dinner party, how, how about for dessert, what are you serving? 
Right. Well, this one, um, again, I loved it. I love desserts. <laughs> I love puddings <laughs> and sweets. So I could have picked lots of things, but um, I chose raspberry pavlova. Again, not very exciting, but um, when I, I, I grew up in, well, I, I grew up poor. I grew up in, in poverty. Um, we didn't have you know, we didn't have many treats and things like that. And I'd never actually tried a pavlova until I went to a wedding when I must have been about 15. And it was somebody in our family. I can't really remember who it was, but it was the first time I'd ever been to a wedding. And it was a wedding with a dinner. And then I remember saying to my parents, oh, my God, what is this amazing pudding? And my mum was, was going, well, it's a pavlova, obviously. <laughs> but I never had such a thing. I was like, oh, my God, what is this nectar from the gods? <laughs> raspberry pavlova. Um, yeah, so still at Christmas, um, I'll have raspberry pavlova for my pudding. <laughs> That's a very, a very good kind of choice. I, it's Pavlovas are kind of impressive, but also don't take a huge amount of effort and taste good. They, are, they please a lot of different people. I think they're a great dinner party pudding for sure. <laughs> Um, and where's the night kind of going? Are you heading out with these three amazing uh, people or are you uh, staying in, chatting until the wee hours? Mm. I could go either way. I mean, oh my God, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to have those three at like, yeah, a women's disco or something. I mean, that'd be, that'd be hilarious. Um, equally, I think, um, I think they'd love to go out to a sort of contemporary queer club as well I think they, they find that interesting <laughs> to see sort of what's going on and, and what the trends are so yeah it'd be great to go clubbing with those three wouldn't it that'd be amazing <laughs> I mean it sounds like a, a wonderful evening to be honest um mm. I'd love to speak to you a bit more about your your book which um uh, female masculinities and the gender wars uh that argues that it's possible to champion both women's and trans rights uh, drawing on your work as a radical feminist activist, as you've uh, previously talked about. How do you feel your own radical feminism fits into, I suppose, this more modern kind of fourth wave feminism that we're experiencing now? I'm a woman, my, woman in my 20s. Most of our, um, if not all of our members are uh, kind of young women in their 20s. Our, our experience of feminism is quite different, I guess, to uh, those waves that, that came before. Mm. Yeah, I mean, radical feminism has just always been the school of feminism that chimed that chimed most with my interests and my politics. Its focus on uh, sexualized violence against women and children, I think they contributed so much on that. I think that's so important. Um, <clears throat> the focus on uh, sort of empowerment, I know that's sometimes a bit hollow term now but the actual sort of empowerment of women focus on women's self-organization um their uh, analysis of gender roles and their is very early kind of presciently queer deconstruction approach to uh, <clears throat> family norms family models and also to to gender roles and to sexuality i mean a lot of radical feminist writing was was gender abolitionist it was trying to look towards a sort of non-hierarchical, kind of communal, um, pansexual, you know, um, post-gender world. It was 
a lot of a lot of that writing came out of a, a revolutionary time and, and people really were thinking about what is the world going to look like when you know we've gone through this passage of change and we've we've had this social revolution so I just always found it very exciting and when I read a lot of those classic texts I actually found them very contemporary and that they still had a lot of useful answers and advice for things that are for things that are happening now. So yeah, it's, it's just always been the one that, that chimed most with my own politics, I suppose. I think if we look back at the second wave, um, the second wave across the Western world at least, and we can look back at the British second wave women's liberation movement and the seven demands that were agreed from 1971 to 1978, I, I don't think that any of those demands really have, have been won um in full so i see that project as, as very much still a a live project and sort of researching i did my phd in the school for policy studies at the university of bristol in the center for gender advanced research and i looked at changes um in sort of motivations and, and methods and activism uh for feminist activists comparing the second wave with the sort of post 2000 um, resurgence at that time it's called the, the third wave and there was a lot in the media about third wave um, feminism and sort of internet-based activism and what I found was that the motivations and you know for getting involved in feminism were still depressingly similar um, young women felt uh, sort of not represented and let down by the sort of objectifying imagery of women in the media they felt they weren't taken seriously. Uh, and tragically, a lot of women had experiences of sexual harassment, sexual assault, threats of sexual assault, stalking, being followed, um, and also experiences of sexual assault, sexual violence. And so the ways that people take action and the ways that they get involved have changed and the ways that people can choose to perpetrate violence against others changes as well in that there's different platforms to do that of course not least um, on the internet social media but i think when you look at the you know how power is used um and who it's used by and who it's used against and what it's used to do i think a lot of those experiences remain depressingly the same mm. i mean how do you distance yourself i guess from those kind of misconceptions that all radical feminists are automatically transphobic, which is a kind of discourse that we see a lot on the internet nowadays. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this term turf is, is out there in the world, uh, <clears throat> trans exclusionary radical feminist. I saw um, Andrew Neil um, in, I think it was in the, the mail or something the other day, or Graph. I can't remember writing an article about how he's now a turf. Mm. Um, I've seen Donald Trump referred to as a turf. I mean, the term has become meaningless. You know, it, it originates from from the 2000s on an internet message board where, where it was being used by radical feminists just as a shorthand acronym to describe radical feminist groups that were working uh, with trans women and groups that had taken a stand not to. It was it was used as an insider acronym, and now it has just come to mean, uh, you know, anyone who is uh, very aggressively transphobic. 
but of course these people are not radical feminists. Um, Donald Trump is not a radical feminist. A lot of the key figures in anti-trans campaigns in the US and the UK have proudly said that they are not feminists. And yet I have to recognize that the term, you know, the genie's out of the bottle on that. There's no going backwards really. This term turf, it means fiercely transphobic. It's applied to women and men, you know, regardless of whether they're a feminist at all. And, and that's just how it's how it's happened. But yes, there's this association that radical feminism out of all of the different types of feminism, you know, is the one that is that is only for white women, that is racist, that is classist, um, and that is transphobic and homophobic. And you know what what that does, amongst many other things, is it erases the involvement of famous and legacy building trans women in the US uh, and the UK in the 1970s second wave, uh, the black women radical feminists that were involved women from working class backgrounds that were involved, all, all different types of women <laughs> were involved in the revolutionary movement that was second wave um, women's liberation and, and still are. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence, I suppose, that the most radical one is picked out um, and has all these, um, all these things and labels attached to it. And that has always been the case. It was the one that was man-hating. It was the one that was for ugly lesbians. It was, yeah, if you thought that all women were better than men. And some of these things are still being taught. So I will still meet first-year students who what they've gleaned from their A-level courses is that radical feminism is the one that believes in female supremacy mm. and wants to put women at the top instead of men and thinks that women are better than men and all men are the enemy. Now, radical feminism was avowedly anti-essentialist that was its whole point not that women are better than men but that all of us are human beings and that none of us are inherently better than the other one it was also an anti-capitalist movement it was anti-war it emerged out of black power the anti-war movements against the war in vietnam it came from the new left um you know revolutionary and, and, and liberatory politics they they certainly were not a lot of the things that that people now think that they were and I suppose in my writing that is something that I do I do try and correct I try and bring out some of these classics from the archives and also these people a lot of these people are still with us you know these are women in their 60s 70s a lot of them still there still involved in activism they're not some microfiche stills, you know, that we might find in some dusty archive somewhere. This is an ongoing and still quite recent movement um, that had a lot to contribute. And I think, yeah, it's, I mean, Andrea Dworkin, um, another famous radical feminist, you know, always said that, you know, all these uh, things attached to feminism, these attacks on feminism, stereotypes and, and labels attached to them are to police women's engagement with feminism, are to put women off becoming involved in feminism. And that because women are hated, women's politics are hated. And she called it a type of political misogyny, this sort of attacks on feminism as an, as an organized movement. You know, it's a serious politics with, with theory and forms of activism, like any other um, serious political movement and the political thinkers attached to it, but it isn't treated in that way. And that's incredibly interesting, especially what you say about how kind of young women coming up to you and having these preconceptions of different types of feminism. Mm. And it also being this ongoing journey, this ongoing movement still, obviously, given 
many of those original radical feminists are clearly still alive. Um, what advice would you give to young feminists in their 20s, 30s, or, or also in their teens um, <clears throat> in the UK now? Mm. Okay, so for women in their 20s and 30s, if they are going into a workplace, I would say join a trade union. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think we're, well, it's not, it's not a matter of thinking. I mean, we are in a very chaotic period of history. We're, you know, immersed in ongoing crises and insecurity. We've got climate insecurity. We've got economic insecurity. Um, we've got a rogue government that is capitalizing on these things and, and making everything worse. So I think we're in, we're in a very difficult situation. And I think collective organized politics it, it is the way forward. I mean, I'm a socialist, I'm a committed socialist and, but I think trade unions are important for everybody. I mean, this is why the government is trying to, to weaken them even more, to take away the power to strike um, because they're effective. And I think because women, because of how uh, women are, you know, because of how femininity is constructed, how women's roles are constructed, the care burden that still falls mainly on women. Women have need of the services that trade unions can offer around um, around time off for caring leave, um, around pregnancy leave, returning to work, um, equal pay. These are all still very live issues. So I think joining a trade union is really important. And then, you know, you mentioned intersectionality at the beginning. I think, yes, of course, that is a really important lens and framework through which to view the world. So I think we look at where the biggest cracks are. We look at where, um, you know, who are the groups of people being most marginalized at the moment? And then how can we all kind of get involved? Because I think that's the lesson of intersectionality, really. You see where the cracks are, and then you try to fix those most stark ones. And you create a better and more comfortable and more um, navigable world for everybody. That's the whole point of it. You look at where the barriers are that are most extreme. And actually what you find is when you take those down, of course, the world becomes more livable for everybody. And I think at the moment, obviously, that group being most marginalized is people seeking asylum, is refugee and asylum seeking people. And I think there there are a lot of cliches about activism, but I think working together with others for humanity and for humanitarian reasons is, is rewarding um, and is also addressing, you know, a real need at the moment. It, it, it brings people together in a time where too many political leaders want us all to be divided because that, you know, as so often is the case, suits their agenda. So I think there is joy and power in activism and also joining together in, in collective struggles and collective movements is really important, especially now. I mean, that feels particularly apt given that it was World Humanitarian Day on the weekend. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, my my day job is um, I'm in the humanitarian uh, kind of international humanitarian space, so uh, right. that, uh, <laughs> that kind of dialogue yeah. means a huge amount to me to see kind of crisis crises as compounding and and uh, seeing humans as kind of uh, experiencing many different crises at once rather than 
one type of human experiencing one type of crisis obviously mm, exactly yeah I mean that's I, I've loved your dinner party <laughs> but, yeah. um I thought it was uh, brilliant that you could get you know bell hooks there <laughs> um, your menu was great uh your music was kind of uplifting um I always ask my guests one final question uh, which is uh, what are you doing on an everyday basis uh, in a small way uh, to become a better feminist either for yourself or for those around you? Well since I became a parent I don't I don't do so much activism now I, I go on demonstrations and protests when I can but I'm not I'm not engaged in activism in the way that I was but I do see I do see teaching in a small way um, as as a way that I can contribute something, and I try to I try to right some of the wrongs that are constantly being said and done about feminism and feminist activism and what it is. I try and correct the record on some of those, and yeah, I see that as a small contribution. I want to let my students know as much as I can what is going on in the world in in all of our names <clears throat> and I do a course in first year on social issues and social problems and we cover um, migration, uh, animal rights, racism, black power movements, deaths in custody, uh, treatment of young people, and every year I have more depressing and horrific case studies to update, <laughs> update my lecture slides with, but I feel it's important. It, it's a cliche, but knowledge is power. And I think it is important that people know what's going on in the world. And then they can choose how they process that information, but also what they might do about it. And I having those spaces to think about what's wrong with the world and how it could be better i think to me especially in my subject sociology to me that's what sociology is it's about bridging that gap between what is and what could be and so creating those safe and non-judgmental spaces in in teaching on the on the journey that is a university degree where we can do that and people are allowed to think about those things and to question things. I just think that's so important. And again, it's something that our government at the moment is trying to stop young people from doing because they recognize that young people are engaged and passionate and have energy and time to put into changing the world. And that's why they are trying to stop them from doing so. So I try to do what I can to rectify that. That's a lovely answer um well thank you so much Finn for joining us today thank you for inviting me thanks very much